Welcome back to the Messy Reformation. My name's Jason Rice. I'm the lead pastor at Faith Community CRC in Beaverdam, Wisconsin. My co-host is Willie Cronkey. He's a member at Pease CRC in Pease, Minnesota. We're just a couple of guys who love the Christian Reformed Church and want to see Reformation happen in our denomination. And we realize that whenever Reformation happens, things get messy. And we're starting to see things get messy now in the CRC. So we're taking the opportunity to have conversations with pastors throughout the Christian Reformed Church to find out what's going on in our denomination, but also to talk about what Reformation might look like. If you haven't already, take a moment, click subscribe so you don't miss any of our upcoming content. We are dropping episodes every single Monday. We also want to say thanks to all of those who have supported us over on Patreon. We are slowly working our way toward 20 supporters at $5 a month. If you appreciate what we're doing and want to help us continue putting out content, head on over to patreon.com backslash the messy reformation. With all that said, we're going to get to this week's episode, which is part two of our conversation with Laura Copley. Here, the people of God have this amazing treasure, and uh, it wasn't until Josiah did those repairs that they rediscover it. And it was it was such an exciting time of renewal and revival. And I wonder if something like that is happening in our own denomination right now with some of this ferment that you see in the Abide Project and with the Messy Reformation and just in other grassroots areas um, in the denomination where it's like, like we have a precious treasure. Um, Paul says to Timothy, guard the good deposit, you know, guard the precious treasure that, that you were given. And, and maybe, maybe we took it for granted and maybe it's getting dusted off a little bit. And we realize, Hey, um, we're rediscovering in our confessions, um, in the word of God itself, like what, what a treasure we have that was passed to us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Laura, thanks for that. Um, and you're you're kind of slowly and subtly hinting at what I've been meaning to ask you. And uh, you've been in the CRC for a while. You've kind of exegeted our denomination for quite a long time now. Uh, I'm kind of wondering what you think there are for challenges that are in front of us or things that you might see as as troublesome right now. Yeah, thanks, Willie. Um, I I think in these podcasts that I've listened that you've had previous folks, um, there's, there's been so many good insights that have been mentioned about, about troubling, uh, areas in the denomination. Um, in it, and so I won't try to repeat too much of, of what I've heard others say, but, uh, in my context, uh, particularly the, the growth of what I'd say is progressivism, um, is is something that really has made me very distressed, and and I think it it is it's a very seductive kind of way of um, reinterpreting um, the the Bible and reinterpreting uh, core doctrines like the atonement and and sin and the creator creature distinction. You know, um, one of the the kind of um, spiritual fathers of of progressivism of pro- progressive theological thought is um richard rohr who's right in our neck of the woods he's 
He's a Franciscan priest um, in Albuquerque, New Mexico. He has the Center of Contemplation in Action. And uh, he always has a regular spot in our community newspaper, you know, and um, there are many folks in, in my area that I think have been um, a, a bit taken in by this um, idea of a very open and welcoming theology, which in essence has, it uses the same words. It uses words like Christ and it uses words like atonement, and yet it drains it of all of its historical biblical meaning and pours into a foreign worldview and a foreign um, uh, foreign content into into you know um, Christian sounding words, and you end up with a false gospel, and that that's something that I I have seen um, uh, a flirtation or even an embrace of. Um, in our denomination, that gives me a lot of pause. Yeah, I think that is completely fair. Good assessment. Uh, Laura, something that I think I, I, I kind of forgot until uh, we started interviewing you, we actually were both at the 2019 Synod together. Yes, that's right. Yeah, now the Lord and his providence did not have us meet. Mm -hmm. uh, but I'm glad we're getting to meet now. But I am actually kind of wondering what you took away from that interaction and that week. From Synod 2019? I know it's getting to be a while ago. Yeah, yeah. Um, boy. So so that was over a thousand days ago. I, I know because <laughs> I, I I looked it up. I was like, how long has it been since our denomination met as a synod? And uh yeah. I so it was very eye-opening for me. I'd never been to a synod before. That was my first time. Maybe that was the first time for you too, Willie. Yes, yeah, so it was. Yeah. So um, I, um, on the one hand, it was just such an encouragement to to kind of come together from all the different nooks and crannies of the denomination, and you know, to to pray together and worship together. And um, there there was there were some important. Um, things that we talked about at 2019, Kenism was, um, I was really glad that not only was Kenism declared a heresy, but also there was a very clear statement that, hey, if if teachers or elders um, are teaching something that is um, heretical, that needs, like, like as a denomination, we're not just going to sit idly by, like that needs to be addressed it needs to be rebuked it needs to be disciplined and i thought that was important that um that the synod um made that kind of clear dis, uh declaration and and i hope that we can like live up to that clear declaration not just in that area but also in er other areas of challenges in our denomination yeah for sure I uh, I want to jump back to one of the things that you had said earlier about uh, something we haven't talked about much on the on the podcast, and so I want to dive into it. And I've appreciated some of the the work you've done on this, uh, actually not publicly, but I've seen it behind the scenes on oh. <laughs> on uh, taking words and uh, and pouring in different definitions of them. And yes, um, and so that that's part of progressivism, um, really. I, I've heard people say it's really a battle over the dictionary, mm -hmm. which makes it such a hard, a hard debate to have. Or if you want to use the the fight, like it's hard to have a 
a battle on this because they're saying the same things and yet you just smell that they mean something different different by it. And so I, I'd really love to to dive into that a little bit more with you and talk about um, how do how do we really interact on that level where where they're saying the same kinds of words but they're they're really meaning something different by it. Yeah, and actually, interestingly, your question, Jason, gets back to to send in two thousand nineteen um, because it it was in two different contexts. I won't share too much about it, but in two different contexts in two uh, send in two thousand nineteen that I I started to feel uncomfortable um, that there was a um, that that there was. Uh, reference made to some authors and writers that that I, in a positive way, in an appreciative way, that I had understood to be um, red have red flags. So Nadia Boltz Weber, um, um, Jen Hatmaker, um, so, some others, and uh, and Richard Rohr. And actually, uh, so so it was at Senate 2019 that that I first started to wonder okay, is this, maybe this problem isn't just an out there problem in broader evangelicalism that, you know, uh, is something that CRC folks would never be be duped by. Like maybe it is, maybe the enemy's in the ranks and I need to do my homework and actually figure out like what is Roar saying and what is, um, um, maybe there's there's more to this where it's not just, Folks saying, "Hey, we need to embody the story of a deeply human book." Like maybe that's not just acknowledging the fact that God used human authors, and it's not a mechanical inspiration. Like maybe there's a new way of reading scripture that's actually um, uh, gaining traction in yeah. our denomination and in our denominational circles. Or mm-hmm. uh, uh, when, so, so yeah, I. I had kind of done a deep dive um, in the summer of 2019. That's when I first picked up Roar and, and picked up um, a couple other uh, progressive authors and and um, wanted to figure out, does this align with historical Christianity? And I realized it was, it, it was uh, another Jesus, another gospel, another spirit, um, and it's something that would hurt the body because it offers a stone for bread you know it 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 takes away uh the authority outside of yourself uh a savior outside of yourself and pretty much makes yourself the savior it 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 makes uh your your own lived experience authoritative and your feelings like authoritative and um and yeah it it if if I really care about the flock, if I care about my students, um, you have to address the the error head on because the gospel's at stake. Mm-hmm. Amen. Yeah, and 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 I think it actually part of this drift ties into a lot of what we've talked about already. Um, I remember I remember talking to somebody a while ago, and they were having a book study in a Christian Reformed church, and, and they were reading uh, Greg Boyd, and, uh, you know, big proponent, open theism, and all of that, and they were talking about how great his book was, and and I remember going, ah, 
no, no, this is not good. And talking to them and they kind of rolled their eyes at me like, well, we don't just have to read Christian reform stuff, you know? And so it almost ties like there's this, we take for granted our theology. And so we start looking in all these other places thinking maybe there's something better out there that we can find maybe some of these other people. And then we start bringing it in. And then we don't really realize that, that things are being shifted and changed. And so um, I've had, it's kind of funny. I've heard you, and maybe you haven't heard this, but you, I've heard you accuse people say like, what's her problem with Richard Rohr? She's always angry. You know, she's always saying something about Richard Rohr. Oh, no. and, uh, and the funny thing is, is well, because he's right in your neck of the woods, he's influencing your people. Well, I've been accused of that with Greg Boyd. People mm. are like, why are you always ripping on Greg Boyd? Well, I was doing ministry in Minnesota and he was influencing people down just close by and friends of yeah. mine. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, the thing that I came to the conclusion of with Greg Boyd was a lot of his, um, he, he gets people to buy in because he, he takes, he uses the word love all the time, but he changes the, the definition yeah. of it. Right. And, uh, right. and so they think, well, yeah, this is love and this is what love means. And he says, well, if this is what love means and this, then this, then this. And he draws all these conclusions. And if you get down to it, you think, yeah, he's actually not describing love uh, the way that scripture defines love. Right. And, uh, and that flows into a lot of our current discussions of around sexuality in the Christian Reformed Church right now, too. I just, uh, I'm, I'm in the middle of writing something on this right now. But um, we uh, just about a month ago, or yeah, about a month ago, there was a post on the network um, that was put out by the Congregational Ministries Directors of the CRC. And, and it ended, or maybe it was close to the end of it, they said, the fundamental thing we need to understand, the fundamental, uh, oh, how did they word it? Anyways, the fundamental idea we need to consider regarding human sexuality is that God is love. Um, that's, that's the only thing we need to consider. And I remember thinking, okay, I could maybe buy that if we meant the same thing about love. Um, but also I remember thinking like, well, you're kind of denying some of our core doctrines of God, like the simplicity of God, that he's not just love. He's also holy. Yeah. And, uh, and he's also, yeah, all of these things tie together, but again, it comes back to this. They, they take a word and then they, they flip it on its head and mean something else where you have a hard time arguing with it because you say, well, of course we believe God is love. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah. I, so like Richard Rohr will say that, that this is love, that God loves things by becoming them. Like he, it's, it's a very, uh, it's an understanding of salvation by kind of incarnation that, 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 that we become Christ. Um, but scripture says, this is love, uh, that God sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sin. Right. And mm -hmm. so, so like, are we going to let God define what love is? And if, if scripture says that, 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 his love has to do with an atoning sacrifice for sin, then it's never that there's just this kind of amorphous blanket acceptance or approval because the atonement means that God rejects our sin and that there has to be uh propitiate. I mean, there, there has to be um, um, a, a covering over a debt is it has to be paid and and we can't see God's love apart from um, his sacrifice on the cross and his uh, resurrection his enthronement like all of that is actually part and parcel of what it means to understand that God is love 
And I, I, I think that, um, my, my husband will always say, you know, um, we need to be loving like Jesus and we need to be teaching like Jesus. And what I think there's been a trend, um, is to separate those two, that somehow we can be the loving like Jesus, uh, in opposition to, or in dismissal of the teaching of Jesus. And of course the teaching Mm -hmm. of Jesus you know, is part of from everything from Genesis to Revelation. Um, and so it's not just the red letters, his his teaching, he fully uh, endorsed and um, celebrated the whole of scripture. But I, yeah, I, I think that there's been um, a suspicion that somehow the the full counsel of God, the full word of God isn't trustworthy or something. And so, so if we really want to love people, we have to like um, we have to do so with a fundamental undermining of scripture. And um, boy, that, well, n- number one, I think it's, it's a little insulting to the, to the God who we say authored scripture and who is himself love. Like, um, will we trust that he actually knows what is most compassionate? Will we trust that his ways are always good and all of his paths are peace? Like, will we trust that, that the scripture is, um, um, it's for our, our benefit and our blessing. Um, yeah. So anyway, getting off on a sermon there. Yeah, no, that's good. Well, it's just, it's all of that. Um, I was thinking as you were talking about how roar defines love, I remember talking to a friend who who had really been taken in by Greg Boyd. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I was telling him, you know, Boyd says, well, in order for love to be love, it has to be free, it has to be freely chosen and all of this. And so, um, therefore, God can't know the future. God can't be in control. Otherwise, it wouldn't be loving, right? So that's how he goes and, and goes into this open theism conversation. Mm-hmm. And you kind of see some of that even trickling into the conversations around well, in order for us to be loving, people have to be free to choose, free to do this, free to. Um, and I remember having this conversation with Willie. I don't know, it was a long time ago, Willie, and uh, saying that's not how Scripture defines love. And then Willie looked at me and he said, "Yeah, in love, God predestined us. That doesn't sound mm-hmm. like freedom, right?" right. And mm-hmm. so there, um, there's this there's this real strong need for us to be able to use the words of Scripture in the way that Scripture uses those words, absolutely, and and to define them. And so I think. Love is one of those things we probably need to really start working on and writing on more and preaching on more. Mm-hmm. What does, how does scripture use the word love? And, and also to kind of jump off of the conversation Willie and I had on race, like justice and race mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. all of these words that are being used regularly in our culture right now, we really need to dig down deep in how scripture uses those words and what they mean. And we can't let culture define it because, well, culture's not God. Uh, God has given us his word. And so we really need to make sure we're using words in those ways. Yeah. And freedom and shame. Yeah. I mean, all, all of, all of these words are getting redefined in ways that uh, I think run in opposition to what we see revealed scripture defining them as. Yeah. Amen. I want to, I want to shift kind of toward the start wrapping up and, and ask one of the questions that we ask everybody toward the end is, uh, what types of things do you think we need to be doing as a denomination, um, but just as faithful pastors and, and lay leaders in our churches to start seeing reformation happen? Well, may I um, answer that in my context less as a CRC 
leader and more as a mom. Yeah. So, okay. So, um, so there's this Puritan pastor named Richard Baxter. He ministered in Kidderminster, which was um, a very lackadaisical uh, community when he started and uh, ministering there. And he had said, um, or he wrote in one of his writings that the only way to save the church um, is to rebuild the family altar. And, and, and I, I don't think that actually that's the only way, but, but, but he, he had said, you know, that the, um, that no stream can rise higher than its source and no church can rise higher than the homes that comprise it. Mm. And, and, and I think that, um, so, so his, what he did in Kidderminster has been such an inspiration to me. Like he, um, um, on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesdays, it was his practice to visit the homes and try to teach the, 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 the moms and dads on how to catechize their kids, right? And how to do family altar time, family worship time. Um, and so they, it, it was something like um, within three years they had made, he and some of his elders had made like 800 visits, which blows my mind. But um, it really, there was this renewal and this hunger as families gathered uh, to worship together. And that I, I, like, okay, so as a broader denomination, we need a renewal in, um, um, in the word of God. We need to, to uh, go back to, um, how does Jeremiah put it? Like, uh, look for the ancient paths and and and, mm-hmm. and go back to, um, or I, I think Isaiah says, go back to the rock from which you were formed. Look back to uh, Abraham. I do think we need to go back to our confessions. I think we need to go back to the to to the basics of of um, these truths that um, we've been blessed with. These summaries with the Belgic Confession and and the three forms of unity. But but I think that we can't just do that like in the council rooms. We just it, it can't just be something that feels like top down from like 2850 or from various agencies or from various like classical initiatives. I think it has to happen at home uh, primarily and, and at where where within our um, our families that are gathering around the table or before bed that families are, are being catechized and, um, yeah, devoting themselves to the apostles doctrine and the fellowship, the breaking of bread and prayer, not just, um, in informal ways, but also in the, the informal ways of what's happening with, with uh, mom and the kids and dad and, and the kids. I think that, that that's huge. I think we need to know that we're different than our neighbors. I think as the cultural streams um, in our, our broader context um, get, get more turbulent, that we need to build up our muscle in, in the word of God. And we need our, 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 our families to um, do it together. So that's, yeah. Do you have, uh, and, and, um, because this is, uh, I think you're right on the money. I think it's one of the, uh, 
uh, one of the things we saw actually in the Reformation as well, as, as they were trying to figure out how to reform the church, they started catechetical instruction of, of parents and trying to teach them how to do this in the home. And yet there's always this, this tension because um, we recognize we need to start catechizing parents on how to catechize their children. Um, and yet those parents aren't at a place where they are that desirous yet to need catechism, to, to learn how to teach their children. So like, this is kind of the struggle I've had over the years of how I've, I've wanted to, um, to help disciple parents in discipling their kids, but the parents have been like, you know, I'm, I'm really busy and I've had a, I got to have a hard time doing that. So what are, do you have some ideas or some suggestions for us on how we can kind of start breaking into discipling parents in order to disciple their children? Uh, well, so I think, well, one possible idea would be, um, that if there are families that are, um, in a a rhythm of, of formation of faith formation with their, with their kids, um, that there, that we'd be a little less insular and there would be more, um, invitational like inviting other families to, to come and, and, and join, be part of that. Like for instance, um, in our small group, we had had for a while a um, let's gather before. So our Sunday services are at 1030. And we had a few times where we said, let's gather as a small group for breakfast, like at nine before our Sunday services. And, um, and then um, there, it, it gave an opportunity for um for families to see other well uh other family worship that would happen like so so some some folks in my area do a kind of uh prepare your heart prepare your family for worship before you come to worship right and mm-hmm. so so it's not just like okay uh we're all yelling at each other and uh get on your shoes and somebody grabbed the offering and, you know, all of the, the, the craziness. I'm from a family of nine kids. And so um, <laughs> there, you know, there, there wasn't, uh, it, it was never like easy getting out the door, especially because in a home missions church, you know, you're bringing the overhead projector and you're bringing the coffee pot with the coffee and it gets spilled over in the van. And I mean, it's all kind of just chaotic, but um, my parents really did try, and for us, it was on Saturday nights, having a ritual that our family would try to prepare our hearts for Sunday worship. And that's been something we've tried to do as well. And I think that when there's been, um, when when families can invite other people who um, maybe have never experienced experience reading the Bible together, you know, as a family or singing together as a family. And, and you have that space where there's almost a little bit of a modeling happen, then um, that can be a very powerful way of showing the, um, the benefits and the beauty of, of having it become something that is just as important as the um, soccer practice. (laughs) does it if that makes sense Mm -hmm. yeah it makes total sense Um, laura i'm just kind of wondering as we as we draw this to a close and just thank you for everything that you have said thank you for being on this podcast with us um we have a lot in front of us right now uh we have 
a lot of work to do at the upcoming synod. And uh, just immediately before then, we're, we're in Holy Week right now, uh, just in an immediate context where we're at. So I'm just wondering if you have any final thoughts, closing words uh, for either pastors or church leaders in our denomination right now who are maybe feeling some of the anxieties or, or burdens of their offices. I'm wondering if you have anything to offer to them. Well, if you don't mind, I actually, um, I, I did highlight a few sentences from this book that I had referenced before, uh, Decolonay by Marianne Schoolin, and it's in her very last paragraph. And it so struck um, our family that I thought, man, if they ask me for any final words, I'm going to choose from somebody who's got far better words than I can muster up. Um, may I just read how she ends her book about the CRC? Okay. It says here, the doctrines of the Reformation, so precious to the Christian Reformed Church, were born out of tribulation and persecution. They were defended with courage and strength, built up by trial and hardship. They produced simple childlike faith and a complete trust in a sovereign God who is also a loving father. They inspired unquestioning obedience daily reading of his word, a life guided by prayer, a firm conviction that God's glory is the great goal and purpose of our lives, even of the whole creation, and a peace that passes understanding in striving to please him. If ever the CRC weakens or wavers in these fundamental characteristics, she will have lost her identity and her reason for being. May the Lord of the church never withdraw his grace from the little branch that he transplanted, which held the line for him so firmly a century ago. May we continue to hold that line. One of our listeners had texted me this week and said, you know, it'd be really great if, uh, if the people you interview would close us in prayer after each episode. Would you be willing to do that? I'd be honored to. Father, you are the giver of every good and perfect gift. In fact, all good gifts come down from you who do not change like shifting shadows. Lord, you are um, you are the, the reason that we um, do what we do. It's all about you, Lord Jesus. It's not about um, trying to save some institution. It's not about uh, reputation. It's not about um um our own resumes or or um heritage lord it's about you it's about your glory it's about your word it's about your gospel and so we thank you for the good gifts that you give um through um through yourself and we thank you for this gift of the messy reformation podcast Lord, I thank you for the way that you are uh, using this podcast to to call your church to uh, guard the good deposit that was given to us. You're calling your church to um, stand true, even when uh, savage wolves are seeking to kill, steal, and destroy. Lord, you promised that you would build your church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And we know you are a promise-keeping God. 
So we rely on your strength. We rely on your faithfulness. We rely on your character. We rely on your word for all the um, anxiety that we feel about the future um, of our denomination, especially, Lord, as Synod 2022 approaches, we know that you go before us. And we know that we can trust you because you, you have nail prints in your hands that show us the links that you go to build a people for yourselves. Lord, would you purify your church? Would you prune us where we need pruning? We pray that you would strengthen our families in the word of God and by prayer. We pray that all things would be done, Lord, for your honor and your glory. And we ask this all not by our own deserving, Lord, but only through the merits of your son that he won for us on the cross. We do pray, and it's in his name. Amen. That's all we have for this week. Stay tuned next week for a short conversation between myself and Willie Cronkey. But until then, don't forget this is Christ Church, and he bought it with his blood. And we've been warned that wolves will come in trying to destroy the flock. So keep a close watch on your life and on your doctrine. Preach the word in season and out of season. And keep fighting the good fight in this messy reformation.